This is episode number 75, the ACC Basketball Report. I appreciate you guys joining me. It is I, Michael Hunter, at ACCBR1 on Twitter. If you like to follow that type of thing, ACC Basketball Report on Facebook, ACC Basketball Report at gmail.com. You guys want to drop me an email for a mailbag episode later. Today, I got a pretty sweet guest, one of my favorite guys on Twitter, one of my favorite uh, independents. I was supposed to have him on a little bit sooner, but I caught him at. Uh, a great time for him and a poor time for my schedule. He just had a, uh, a baby girl, so congratulations to, to Mike Rutherford of CardChronicle.com on uh, the addition to his family. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, as anticipated, Mike was a fantastic guest, really knowledgeable, uh, a lot of good thoughts from him. I was <laughs> not of my past. I just couldn't seem to get it together during this episode for whatever reason my brain was kind of all over the place I was trying to take some notes to put on a good interview with Mike and what I ended up doing was kind of scatterbraining myself a little bit so I apologize for that but uh, we got it together towards the end I thought and had a really good conversation regarding the NIL and you know the likeness rights and the California bills and, and what to expect in the years to come as we move towards uh, getting these athletes paid for their likeness rights and, and, and things of that, being able to to market themselves effectively f- and, and get a piece of that, you know, hundreds and hundreds of million dollar, potentially billion dollar pie, which Mike drops a, tre- a tremendous stat uh, in the, over the course of this interview. So pay attention for that when we get into that conversation. I wanted to clear a few things up, uh, just a little bit of housekeeping before we get into the interview. Uh, some big happenings around the league as far as recruiting additions and subtractions. You know, there's going to be, as there is in the ACC every year, <clears throat> a lot of turnover. And right now, as we get into the early signing period, teams around the ACC are just loading up on talent. Uh, Florida State just landed one of the top 10 players in the 2020 class in Scotty Barnes. It was kind of a complete surprise. This is a kid that is, you know, he's a, a wing forward, known for his leadership, defensive, athletic ability. He is the, the typical type of player that Florida State seems to land and this staff of Stan Jones, Leonard Hamilton and uh, Carlton Young continue to just be a force on the recruiting trail. Everybody talks about Kentucky and Duke and Carolina and Kansas and rightfully so. Obviously those are, you know, even Louisville to a certain extent. Rightfully so. Those are the big boys on the recruiting trail and you get out towards the west you got obviously Arizona and Oregon but you cannot... I can't really explain or or even fathom why nobody really gives Florida State the, the any credit on the recruiting trail. I mean, they frequently go into Georgia and get really good players. I think they're on the same level as kind of like Auburn. Auburn does really well on the recruiting trail, and uh, you know a lot of people just kind of write it off. They don't talk about Auburn and Florida State as being two of the better recruiting programs in at the very least, the Southeast. I mean, those guys frequently get the, the best players in Florida and Georgia and Alabama, Mississippi, etc. So, big win for Florida State on the recruiting trail. Carlton Young does it again. Um, he's a name to keep an eye on in the coming years as Leonard Hamilton gets up there in age, I believe. Uh, some other things. Josh Hall from Durham, North Carolina, right up the road from where I'm sitting as I'm talking to you, currently on a visit to North Carolina State. <clears throat> So, you know, Kevin Keats is not done yet. He actually added the forward of the future, possibly the center of the future, in Ebenezer, I can never say this kid's name, Do, Dao Yuona. Dao Yuona. 
Ebenezer Dayuona. Okay, if that's wrong, I mean, I'm, I apologize. He is a high-level three-star, low-level four-star type forward. I think he projects more as a four-year player. He's a kid that I wouldn't be shocked to see playing, you know, starting in the front line at NC State by the time he's a junior, senior. I think he's got a lot of athletic ability. Uh, NC State beats out Pitt, Georgia Tech, hmm, uh, South Florida, and Auburn. Again, he's a Georgia kid. So, you know, Auburn in deep with another Georgia kid, Brian Gregory, kind of showing his, you know, his connections in the state of Georgia, though he didn't do it very well while he was at Georgia Tech, was in there deep on USF. Um, so, <laughs> staying in the state of Georgia, uh, Devin Smith, who is a player in the Atlanta area, played for the Atlanta Celtics, was actually a very um, highly sought after recruit for Louisville as well as Georgia Tech. Kind of surprises some people. And ends up at Mississippi State. He was a big Louisville target. People are starting to uh, question this 2020 class going to Louisville next year. I think with the class that they brought in for 2019 and the amount of depth and the amount of talent that they brought in to this program, I think that may be having an impact. Guys like David Johnson, Samuel Williams, and Jalen Withers, um, Aiden Nigihan, you know, these guys are going to be stars in Louisville for as long as they stay here. And, you know, some of that depth, that quality depth, may be scaring away some of these kids. That's just me speculating. Uh, Pitt gets its center of the future in Max uh, Madison, I believe is how you say his name. 6'10". He is headed to Pittsburgh over UMass Penn State URI. He is currently not ranked by 24-7 sports in the composite or anywhere else. But uh, Jeff Capel obviously sees something. And after missing out on Ebenezer, this guy was next in their bucket as far as takes, so that is kind of, uh, you know, just kind of a domino effect that you're seeing here. Uh, I got a comment, you know, Devin Smith and Ebenezer, two Atlanta guys. Ebenezer, not so much an Atlanta guy, but two Georgia kids that are now leaving Georgia. And Josh Pastner and, and staff continue to fail to recruit kids right in their own backyard. At this point, with the sanctions and everything else that's going on with that program, I think you know, this ship has kind of sailed, and until this, you know, until this program, until this athletic department decides they want to win at basketball, Pastner's probably going to be there. Nobody else is going to want this job. His bio, I saw his um, his name on a Gary Parish article <clears throat> from CBS Sports saying Pastner could be on the hot seat. He's not going to be on the hot seat. They can't fire him with cause, so they're not going to get rid of him. His, his contract is very friendly <clears throat> until after year five, I believe. So... <clears throat> He's going to be there this year. He's going to be there next year. And he's, I, you know, they have a, I have a good shot at having a good season this year, but now they can't play in the NCAA tournament. Now they can't play in the ACC tournament. So, you know, it's difficult for me to get excited about Georgia Tech basketball right now. Um, I guess I'm going to throw on my Notre Dame hat and try to just enjoy this season. Um, one more thing I want to talk about. Kadari Richmond is a four-star combo guard type player. Um, top 100, 125 type recruit. It was interesting earlier this week, or actually late last week, uh, Pat Lawless, um, who's you know one of the better uh, Twitter f- people as far as getting out recruiting information, uh, tweets out that Lawless, I'm sorry, tweets out that, uh, that Richmond has committed, uh, Jesus Christ, has committed to Syracuse, and immediately after, Corey Evans backs him up and confirms that, and then I think immediately after that, Corey retweeted out that, oh, hold on, this isn't 
actually 100% accurate. It's kind of on hold, quote-unquote. So, you know, Syracuse is still heavily in the mix. I haven't seen a lot of action on the crystal ball. I'm not sure what... I'm not sure what the holdup is. I'm not sure if there's something behind the scenes going on, or uh, I'm just not sure. But he was committed, and then about 11 minutes later, he was on the fence again. So I still expect Syracuse to be heavily, uh, you know, involved. Uh, UConn is the other team that appears to be involved. So again, it'll be interesting if you recall um, to the James Zuba episode of ACCBR, just this last episode. UConn just beat out Syracuse for Andre Jackson. So, um. Always, always fun when these two teams hook up. Anyway, I think that's about it for, for cleaning everything up on the recruiting trail. And I want to get you guys into the Mike Rutherford episode and uh, and not take up way too much of your time. We went a little bit over, but I think it was worth it. This is a great episode. So without further ado, here is CardChronicle.com's Mike Rutherford. Mr. Rutherford, how's it going, man? Hey, man. How are you doing? Not bad. I, t- I, uh, I appreciate you taking the time today to... Uh, to help me out a little bit and talk some Louisville Cardinals basketball. Oh, it's no problem at all, man. Happy to do it. So I guess I guess we'll jump right into it. Um, Louisville this year, um, I've been high on them since basically the, the season ended last year. Um, last season, they were a little bit of a surprise team. That the Duke loss happened. They're up by about twenty plus points with ten minutes to go. They lose the game. They end up losing eight of their last ten. Get bounced in the first weekend of the tournament. In your estimation, what, uh, what what happened and why weren't they able to recover? I think it, it wasn't just the Duke game. That was the most obvious example. I, I think you kind of everybody kind of forgets the Duke loss happened right off the heels of a, a similar loss against Florida State on the road. I think it had been like three or four days earlier where they had a, a, a sizable lead in the second half and seemed to be in complete control, melted down late. Uh, game went to overtime. It seemed like they had control of it again in overtime, and they melted down again and lost that game. Then for the Duke game to happen on the heels of that, I think that really started to get in their heads. And in the game that nobody remembers is right after the Duke game, they played a Clemson team that had been really, really struggling going into mm-hmm. that game. Louisville total control. They led by, I think, eight points with less than a minute to go. Completely melted down again. Had a bunch of turnovers. Uh, made some stupid decisions. Actually threw the ball away on their last second inbound pass. And Jordan Moore had to block a potential game-winning shot that, uh, that allowed them to escape with a one-point win. Yep. I think after that string of games, they really started to doubt themselves. They, you know, you, you forget, the only time we talked about Louisville before the end of January, the beginning of February, was in terms of being an overachiever. They were seen as one of the yep. 16 best teams in the country. They had the big win over Michigan State. They blew out North Carolina in the Dean Dome. Everybody was talking about Chris Mack and the job he'd done. Then those three games happened. I think a lot of people who had a lot of confidence started to uh, to lose some of that confidence. And they ended up uh, dropping eight of their last ten games. Their only two wins after that stretch came against uh, Notre Dame, uh, the worst team in the ACC. So it was, I think, still a successful season based on their preseason expectations. But definitely you wonder what would have happened had they not, you know, obviously had the Duke meltdown, but had they not had that nine-day day stretch where three really bad late-game collapses happened right on top of one another. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I remember the Clemson game. <clears throat> I had forgotten about the Florida State game. I think the uh, the eye-opening experience for me with this Louisville team last season was when they went to Atlanta and they completely torched Georgia Tech. I mean, I think... I think the opening they opened the game on like a thirty-one to five run or something crazy like that, and I said, you know, I I knew that Jordan War was going to be good last year, but I think that was kind of the game where 
it, it was an eye-opening experience. Like, wow, this Louisville team is is going to be really, really good. They have a high a high end potential to to be a really good team. Um, do you think, in your opinion, um, I, I I've heard on some other podcasts that people are, are are calling back that Duke game. Does that game have any effect on this year's team at all? Does that does that play into your mind when you're when you're ranking this team or when you're when you're evaluating this team? I think the only effect it has is that they've talked about it so much going into the season. Uh, Chris Mack, they've had a video crew following them around, kind of documenting the early stages of this year. Their first official team meeting, you know, I think I guess it was September when everybody got together and everybody was on board. They showed clips of the Duke game. They showed clips of the Florida State game. They showed clips of the second North Carolina game. Mm-hmm. They showed clips of the NCAA tournament game. And basically, Chris Mack's overarching message so far this season has been, you guys got to finish. You worked really hard to put yourselves in position to do something special last year, and you didn't do it because we weren't tough enough or for whatever reason. I think that's the only lingering effect that the Duke game had. I think last year it was hard for that group to avoid it because it wasn't just talked about that night. Every time anybody talked about Duke and Zion and R.J. Barrett moving forward, there were the highlights of those of that game. It was on TV. You, you like legit could not escape it. I remember watching... I mean, I don't even know what it was. It was like a like Dominican baseball game at some point in, in early March. And they, somehow the new comeback against Louisville got brought up. It was just impossible for that group of guys to escape it. Um, I, I think as far as this year's group, I think the only only way it comes up is as a motivational tool. I think that's the only thing they're going to hear about it. Maybe if you get up, uh, you know, 15 on a really good team this year and you start to feel yourself easing up a little bit, maybe that uh, – kicks you in the, in the rear end mm-hmm. and you get going just because you have that memory. But as far as there being some sort of lingering mental effect in a negative way, eh, I, I mean, you can't ever say for certain, but it's hard for me to see that being a big factor with this year's group. Yeah, I think one of the most evident things, I think, towards the end of the season last year was, first of all, Kristen Cunningham, I thought, played well above what I what I expected from him coming over from from a low major school. I thought he played incredible the entire season. And then after that stretch, it seemed like he he, he kind of took it harder than everybody else. He kind of fell off a little bit, I thought. This year, uh, obviously as a grad transfer, he's gone. We, we replaced him with, with uh, Lamar Kimball, Fresh Kimball, who's had some health issues. What do you expect from Kimball? Do you think that he is an upgrade over Cunningham? Or, or, or what are your thoughts on Kimball? Is he healthy, I guess, would be another question I have. I guess, uh, you know, I think right now the point guard may be the biggest question mark for this team. But uh, what, what are your impressions? What are your thoughts on, on Fresh Kimball? No, I, I totally agree with you. I think if you're looking for a reason to pick up your Louisville, if you're one of those people that does not have them, as a top-five team nationally or doesn't think they have a chance to win the ACC, I think you point to the point guard position just because uh, you're right about Kristen Cunningham. I mean, he was a Samford grad transfer who had ties to Louisville. We knew about him here because he played on some AAU teams with Quentin Snyder and some guys in this area, and he'd always wanted to go to Louisville but wasn't seen as that caliber player coming out of high school. And, you know, he was the school's all-time leading assist leader, Mm -hmm. and that's obviously something fans could grab onto and say that's the reason why this guy's going to have success here. But when you're making a jump from a school to like like Sanford to a place like Louisville that's going to be competing in the ACC, I think you have significant doubts about guys, especially when they play a position like point guard where you're going to have to deal with so much pressure. And he was, uh, you're right, a, a massive overachiever for Louisville in his one season here. I think the bigger issue for Kristen last year down the stretch when his numbers started to, to go down a little bit, first of all, I think that the shooting 
reverted to the norm a little bit. Mm-hmm. He'd never been the type of three-point shooter that he was in his first two months at Louisville last season. I think that kind of regressed the way it was supposed to. The issue was he didn't have anybody helping him in the backcourt. Darius Perry was supposed to be the you know the backup point guard slash the guy who could take some pressure off him. And Darius had a, I mean, he'll admit it, he had a really bad sophomore season. He was not reliable playing the point. And after Fresh, or after Kristen Cunningham, I should say, you didn't really have anybody who could help out. Ryan McMahon is a great knockout shooter. He's not a point guard. They tried to play him there a little bit. It didn't go well. Jordan Wara, uh, you know, okay ball handler, not quick enough to get around the best defenders in the country. They just didn't. Dwayne Sutton, same thing. You just didn't have anybody who could take that pressure off him when teams started to double him or go full court press. And once Florida State and Duke had those massive comebacks, I think the blueprint was kind of out. As far as Fresh Kimball, I think he's the big question mark. I think naturally – He's a better scorer than Kristen Cunningham was, but I think he, he's not as good a passer and maybe struggles more with the concept of, uh, of what Chris Mack's trying to preach. You've heard a couple of players in the first few weeks of practice here say that, um, you know, Fresh is getting better at sharing the ball. Mm-hmm. I think he, you know, he's going from a place in St. Joe's where he was relied upon to score a, a bunch up there, and actually his most recent season was playing off the ball. They moved him away from points. So I think getting back to that point guard mentality is a little bit of adjustment to uh, for him. And having this much offensive talent around him is totally new for him. So I think that's been a little bit of an, an adjustment. The health, I think, is probably the bigger issue. I think it's totally right on that. Um, he's had one full healthy college season, and that was his sophomore year. Uh, he shortened season last year, missed almost all of it the season two years ago. If he does go down, uh, you, I mean, you've got uh, Darius Perry, who I think can step into that role and should be, at least mentally, more able to fill that than he was a year ago. And then David Johnson should be back from injury sooner rather than later. I think you're set to have him back in mid-November at this point. He can help out there too. But still, those are two guys who have not proven in Johnson and Perry that they can run the point at this type of level. Kimball, I mean, the jump from the A-10 should be easier than the jump from mm-hmm. uh, from Sanford that Chris and Cunningham made. But we don't know. Uh, he didn't look great at the red-white scrimmage, but that was a 12-minute type game. I don't want to read too much into that, but we'll see. But I'm with you as far as if you're looking for a reason not to believe in Louisville, I think point guard is that biggest question mark. Yeah, so actually um, what I what I grabbed onto there was uh, expect, expectations are to have Johnson back in, in November because I think I originally heard around Christmas time was, was when right. he was expected. Yeah, he is reportedly, according to Chris Mack last week, um, he's way ahead of schedule. So I think it was one of those injuries where you have a, a wide-ranging timetable because shoulders are kind of funky, mm-hmm. and they weren't sure exactly what happened. But there was no tear. Um, there wasn't. It wasn't quite as serious as they initially thought. He did have to go through surgery for it or undergo a minor surgery. But uh, from everything Chris Mack was saying, it sounds like you're going to have him back in November, late November, as opposed to the original timetable, which was you know, late December, right at the start of, of new conference play. And that's a big gift because according to all the uh, everybody around the program, during those summer sessions where the team's allowed to practice, David Johnson was even better than they thought he was going to. Yeah. They saw him as the biggest impact freshman outside of Samuel Williamson on this year's team. Hopefully he can get back there because if, you, you know, if you're looking at one spot on the team that needs depth, it's those two guard spots. Uh, he, he would definitely find minutes there when he's fully healthy. Yeah, I, I'm really intrigued by by Darius Johnson because I'm I'm not a great big Darius Perry fan. Um, you know, as a as a guy who can maybe give Kimball uh, you know a blow here and there, maybe get a defensive stop. But I don't think that you know if Louisville is going to be a high end team, a top five team of the season, I don't think Darius can be on the court um, a, a tremendous amount of time. Um, you mentioned the red-white game. I, as a, as a fan, as a guy who follows uh, Georgia prep basketball, 
Josh Nickelberry is a guy that I that I loved when he was a prep. Um, I'm assuming you got to see him in the red-white game. What are your thoughts, and why is he seemingly underrated? I think Nickelberry's a hard guy to kind of pin down what his role is going to be in year one just because there are so many guys on the team that do the types of things that he does. Um, I think the one thing that you've heard from um, Stephen Enoch said it, Jordan Lewis said it, Chris Mack said it, they love his defensive ability. Yep. They, they see him as a guy that if a, if a you know if a two, three, or a four gets a couple of fouls, he can come in and fill that role and play defense for a couple of minutes and give that guy a break. He obviously has a reputation as a knockdown shooter. He had the ball pretty well yesterday in the red-white scrimmage. Um, I think he was two of six from the field. He His athleticism is good enough. He can do a lot of things really well. He's just kind of a jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none type guy right now. I think the other thing that you keep hearing about Josh Nickelberry is that he was playing a position in high school and on the AAU circuit. That's why he wasn't as well-regarded by the scouting services as he was Chris Mack in his coaching staff. He didn't think he should have been playing point. When he did try to play point, he looked a little bit, I don't know, uh, just out of sorts. Um, I think he's better off the ball. I think that's where they're going to play him here. But they really like him this year as kind of a spot-duty, defensive-stopper type guy, maybe a guy who, if the Ryan McMahon's, Jordan Wars, and Sam Williamson's of the world are having an off-shooting night, you plug in there and hope he can get hot. But there's definitely going to be a role for him. I think he's just going to be one of those guys who, the first five or six weeks of the season, Chris Mack and company are going to use those games against lower competition to try and figure out what exactly his role is going to be and how much they can use him. But I'm with you. I, I'm curious to see how he develops. I know they're big. They're really high on him as like a three, four-year guy, mm-hmm. the type of players that that, uh, that, that, that Mack won big with at Xavier. I think they believe he can be that type of college player at Louisville. Yeah, if I remember correctly, I think he played on a loaded AAU squad where he may have got a little bit buried. He played with a couple five stars. Um, I, 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 I'm not sure that's 100% accurate, but I think that he was on one of those all-star high school teams. And maybe, you know, even though he was a high-end guy, he may have not got as much publicity as, as some of the other guys. Um we talked a little bit about David Johnson's injury. Uh, outlook looks pretty good. You guys are having, you know, some injury concerns in the preseason. Uh, another one is Malik Williams. What are you? Uh, what are you hearing about Malik? Yeah, Malik. It's one of those fifth metatarsal injuries, which I don't know if this is just a global thing because we pay so much attention to the, the global here. But it seems like every global athlete in the last ten years has had a fifth metatarsal injury. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but it just seems to be one of those phrases that keeps uh, rearing its head. So he had the foot injury. I think it was the second week of practice, and, and he was going to be out six to eight weeks. So you expect to have him back about the same time that David Johnson is going to come back, which will be uh, late November-ish. Um, it's an issue because, I mean, Malik Williams was voted unanimously to be a team captain this junior year. He worked really hard in the offseason to, I think, solidify himself as one of the leaders on this team, which was not a role that he played the first couple of years. And he really came on late last year. I mean, they, they used him in a variety of ways. Chris Mack, he plays that four-out, one-in type offense. And he had a he had an issue with, with Malik Williams initially because he never had a guy with a big man with that type of skill set. He wasn't exactly sure how to utilize him. And he said originally he just wanted Malik to play down underneath the basket and do the same types of stuff that Matt Stanbrook was doing at Xavier and Kenny Freeze was doing at Xavier. And it didn't work, work all that well because Williams is a guy who can put the ball on the floor. He is a mm-hmm. guy who can knock down the outside shot. He is a guy with a versatile skill set. And so as the year went on last season, uh, Mac kind of swallowed his pride and said, we've instituted some new stuff on offense to try to utilize this guy's skill set. And Malik really thrived when that happened. And now with a full offseason, I think that they had big plans for Malik here in, in year two under Chris Mack. And I think they still do, but obviously it take, that takes a little bit of a hit 
when you're missing almost all of the preseason, you're going to miss the first couple of weeks of the regular season. I think where where Louisville's really going to miss Malik in the first couple of weeks because they do open, you know, the, the real tough stretch of the non-conference schedule doesn't start until late uh, late November, early December. But they do open on the road with a conference game at Miami, and Malik Williams was without question the better of the two defensive big men last year. Stephen Enoch really struggled with defending ball screens. His conditioning was an issue as well. Um, Malik was the more trustable guy on defense. His offensive game struggled a little bit. It was up and down throughout the season, but he you could rely on him defensively. And I think now without him, you are a little bit concerned about Stephen Enoch conditioning. How much of an issue is that going to be when he's playing even more minutes to start the year? And then in the game on the freshman from Ireland, um, I, I think he can make an impact early on, but he's definitely not polished enough to play big-time minutes to be relied upon as a guy who could you know, play center for 25 straight minutes for your team. So I, I think it hurts. I, I think it's better that he's going to be out the first few weeks than, say, the middle of conference play, because mm-hmm. I do think he's going to have a massive impact on however much success Louisville has, has this season. Yeah, I had him. I had him. I think number twenty-three on my top twenty-five returning players in the ACC. Um, he's kind of a unicorn. He's you know a seven-footer that can step out. I think he hit you know twenty-five, thirty triples last year. So I'm glad you brought up Iggy Han. I, I I mean everybody knows he's 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 a physical specimen. He's you know he's he's cut up. His body is is you know NCAA ready. Um, is he? Do you expect anything from him other than maybe just just a glass guy or a rebound guy? You know, rim defender is is. What do you, I guess? What are your initial thoughts on? I haven't seen a ton of him. Um, uh, nobody's actually seen him at the D one level, obviously. But I, I love the depth with with Williams and Enoch and Iggy Han in the front court. But like you said, it, he may not be ready for twenty minutes. Is he? Is he a guy that can give you twelve good minutes off the bench and get you four or five rebounds? Is that kind of your your expectation? No, I think you had the, the the nail on the head there. I, I think he's the type of a guy. What I would compare him to, if we're talking best case scenario for Aiden Gayon in year one, is Montrose Harrell's first season here at Louisville, mm-hmm. which was the national title team in 2012-13. People kind of, I think, if you weren't paying that much attention to Louisville back then, or just don't remember, you assume Montrose Harrell was a star from day one because of what he's doing in the NBA. He played a very limited role on that team and just kind of filled a niche as a hustle run the floor, block shots, dunk around the rim. And that was essentially his entire role in that team. He had a breakout game in the Big East Championship that year against Syracuse where he started knocking down some shots and really just dominated in the the middle of Louisville's massive second-half run to take control of that game. But outside of that, I mean, he had the big dunk in the national title game. Those were his only two points. He was just kind of a spot guy here playing 8 to 10 to 12 minutes uh, on a given night. I think that's best-case scenario for Aiden Gay on in year one because he does look like a guy – I mean, he looks like a guy with an NBA-ready uh, made mm-hmm. body, not just ACC-ready. He is a massive, massive human being, and he's super athletic. But from uh, all reports around the team, definitely, I mean, he's only been playing basketball for, I think, five or six years. Still, the skill, the offensive skill levels are obviously not where they need to be to, to, you know, to score 10 to 12 points a game. But he can finish around the room. He can run the floor. He should be able to block shots. I think the best thing for him is he's been going up against Stephen Enoch every day in practice who is a guy who has an even more sculpted body than yeah. he does. You're not going to find too many players like that. I'm sure Aiden, in his career so far, hasn't had to go up against a, a human being with the body type of Stephen Enoch. And Enoch is way more polished than he is. He's a terrific offensive player. And by all accounts, he's been taking a game onto school pretty much every day in practice. And I think being humble that first year in your college career really makes for guys who, who wind up being 
uber successful down the line. Um, I mean, Harold was getting dominated by guys like Corky Zhang and Shane Bahan in his, his freshman year here, and then as a sophomore, as a junior, was doing the same thing to the other guys. That's uh, I think that's kind of what you have in mind with Aiden Nagayon this year. And when Malik Williams does come back, he's probably going to see his minutes diminished even more. But having that experience of, of getting real meaningful playing time the first two or three weeks of the year, I think it's going to really work to his benefit. Because, you know, Enoch had foul trouble last year. Malik Williams had foul trouble at times last year. There's probably going to be a big game for Louisville in the ACC where they have to play a game on out of necessity. And maybe having that experience from you know playing 20 or 25 minutes against a young student or a Miami, Ohio during the non-conference portion of the season really gives them the mental boost necessary to, to thrive in that situation when that time comes. Yeah, I think, I mean, one of the one of the biggest advantages that Louisville has this year is, I mean, aside from maybe Duke, Carolina, and a couple other times, they're playing maybe the best team in the conference every day in practice. So, I mean, their depth and their quality depth is, is absolutely, you know, a weapon as far as preparing them for the ACC because they're playing top-level guys, you know, night in, night out in the practice gym. Um I recently published yesterday. I finally said that I'm going to take Louisville as my national champion. Chris Mack, I think, is ACC Coach of the Year because, for whatever reason, they don't like to give it to Roy Williams or Coach K. And Jordan Moore is, you know, one of the the most popular picks for ACC Player of the Year. If I'm wrong, why am I wrong? If you're wrong, I, I think that I think Louisville has the the highest floor of those big four teams in the ACC that everybody's talking about. Because I think I haven't seen one prediction for the conference so far that doesn't have Louisville, Virginia, North Carolina, and Duke in the top four in some order. Mm-hmm. I guess the, the only concern would be maybe Duke and Carolina have higher ceilings because they do have young talent. I mean, maybe Matthew Hurt is better than anybody's assuming he's going to be. Maybe Vernon Carey is better than Jalil Okafor as a freshman. And maybe Cole Anthony is just uh, just that good as a freshman at North Carolina. And these young guys that they're bringing in, the newcomers, not just the young guys, but guys like Christian Keeling, uh, the transfer out of uh, Charleston Southern, maybe they thrive in, in that system at UNC. I guess that's what I would point to. That I don't want to repeat myself about the point guard stuff. That's obviously the biggest, I think, question mark with L as a team. But a lot of times we see in college basketball – we just assume teams that return a bunch are going to get better because they get older. And sometimes it just doesn't happen. Sometimes guys have hit their ceiling as freshmen or sophomores or juniors. And I'm not saying that's going to be the case with Louisville, but Jordan Wara, you know, he increased his scoring output by 11.3 points last year. Looked really good over the summer. Uh, I, I think he does have a little bit more to go in his game. Mm-hmm. But whether or not that jump can be – I mean, it's obviously not going to be the same type of jump that he made from his freshman to his sophomore year. You'd love to see him be more than just a catch-and-shoot guy who occasionally puts the ball on the ground. But like, and I think whatever jump he makes this year is not going to be nearly as sizable as the one a year ago. And I think you say the same thing about guys like Stephen Enoch, maybe about Malik Williams. Um, I guess that would be what I would point to is how much higher can their ceiling be when you've got so many guys back from a year ago that we saw kind of, you know, you know I don't want to say their full arsenal, but at least close to it. Yeah, I, I wonder how, how much better they can be from last year. I guess um, I, I get caught up in the Jordan Orr thing. I, I followed him as a prep when G-Tech was after him. He went, on a, he went on a visit to Louisville, and it was basically all she wrote. And I've, I've been a fan. He's you know a, a 6'7 guy that can shoot it, and he's that athletic. Those are, those are kind of my favorite types of players. Now, if he does make another jump, obviously, like you said, it's not going to be – as big a jump as it was last year, but if he is able to solidify himself as one of the best players in the country, Louisville is going to be very, very difficult to stop. Um, 
biggest story, I guess, in the past couple weeks is the California bill that was passed as far as paying players for likeness rights. Where do you currently see? I mean, we're seeing everybody, Jay Billis, Doug Gottlieb, everybody weighing in. Where do you stand on the pay for players talk? I'm, I mean, I'm for the, the NIL stuff. I, I think it's an, it's an obvious win for everybody involved. It's the most easy first step towards all of this happening. Like, I don't think it's perfect. I, I think you're going to have to do whatever the NCAA's next move is, is going to be super significant as far as whether or not we're still talking about the NCAA being in full control of all this stuff for five to ten years. Um, because it's no longer a question of, you know, should the players get paid or, mm-hmm. or whatever, because this is going to happen. I mean, you, you've got California on board. Florida's now trying to push this thing through so that it would go into effect within the next 12 months. Other states have already jumped in. We Here in Kentucky, we have uh, – it, it's funny how quickly things can move when basketball gets involved. You know, we're, we're not willing to pass any laws about gambling or legalizing marijuana or whatever. We don't ever change. But when, you know, Don Calipari might not be able to recruit on the same level as UCLA <laughs> or Mike White at Florida – Legislators, you know, they, they, you know, they don't say jump; they say how high. So, I think Kentucky will get on board there as well. I think it's just—it's going to be therapeutic for me, at least, to start hearing people talk about how to make this happen, as opposed to whether or not it should. Happen. Right. Because we've had the discussion for a decade now. It seems like you know, should the players get something? And there's been massive pushback from people who say you know, they get enough, or you know, it's going to ruin amateurism. We're finally going to move on from that discussion and say, if we are going to do this, what's the best way to make it happen? Because it, it's really easy on social media to get a billion retweets if you just say, you know, pay the players and, <laughs> yeah. and, and not have an actual solution in place. Like we need, it's not that simple. Like we need to figure out the best way to do it. I don't know if there is a perfect solution, but it's very obvious that the NCAA's current structure is insanely flawed. And the way that they chose to try and address that was do that commission on college basketball, which had a, I mean, painfully low amount of people with actual current college basketball knowledge and experience. And they didn't even address the issue. I mean, mm-hmm. they chose to come out with, we're going to punish people more significantly for issues. We're going to you know, do all the things. We're going to look at the NBA one and done rule. We're going to do what we can there. Work with the NBA collective bargaining agreement. And then they had like one quick little sentence about, yeah, we'll look into the, the name image like this stuff, the Olympic model. We'll, we'll look into that. And then you never heard anything else about it. And now the California bill happens and, and the NCAA kind of has its hand forced. The NCAA has to get this right because this is a an organization. They they last reported in 2017 over a billion-dollar profit, and they made $787 million of that off the NCAA men's basketball tournament. This is, I mean, quite literally, this is the new TV deals going to effect in the next three or four years. The NCAA men's basketball tournament is going to turn into an event that generates a billion dollars of revenue every single year for the NCAA. If you screw this up and you piss off some of the schools that play the biggest role in making that money for you, uh, I mean, you're talking about running the risk of losing a astronomical uh, amount of money. So, whatever the NCAA does, I, I think they would be within their best. In- it would be in their best interest to actually listen to the coaches and listen to the legislators and try to work with them on this. Mark Emmert's whole initial response of, well, we're never going to change, and if you do this, we're going to bang your team to the tournament. It ain't going to play, because all these states are now coming into effect. It's not going to wind up being just California when all is said and done. They're going to have to get this right. I, I, again, I'm for players being able to make something off their name image like this. I think it's the easiest first step. It's the most logical first step. But as far as like a, a total blueprint that's going to solve all of these issues that have plagued college basketball and college football for decades now, 
I don't, I don't have the answer there, but hopefully people smarter than I can get together and make that happen. Yeah, I, you know, I, I was, I'm not going to say that I'm against paying the players because that's not exactly how I feel. I think what I'm against is I haven't seen, it's like you said, it's easy to say, yes, pay the players. Okay, now what is my next question? Like, what's to stop uh, a Duke booster from saying, well, you, you come into my business, I'll give you 50 grand. I mean, you know, it, it, the, the market just kind of figuring itself out as to, you know, it needs to be a cap. There needs to be, you know, they're going to have to pay the volleyball players the same as they pay the basketball players. There's just a lot of ins and outs with it. It's really easy to say, yes, pay them. But I need to see a model that doesn't say that, you know, the Duke boosters that love basketball can't pay, you know, athletes exponentially more than, say, someone at UNLV or, or Texas or wherever. Just for me, there needs to be a lot of thought. And everybody just wants to jump right in and say, yes, give them money. But there's there's a lot of avenues that I think need to be addressed in order to make it successful, in order to make it not more unfair than the system currently is. Yeah, I think the – I mean, we're not talking about salary here. So right. I don't think we need we need to get to a point where – Every player is paid the same across the board. Mm -hmm. I think you're going to find a lot of these. If this does go into effect universally across the country, I, like, I don't think the non-revenue sports are really changed all that dramatically. Like I don't think the volleyball players really get anything mm -hmm. um, out of it. Like maybe somebody who's a, a superstar in a in track and field or something along those lines could make something. I think, for instance, like one of the ways it would benefit some of these non-revenue sports is in a specific area that cares more about that sport than the rest of the country does, like a like. Louisville women's basketball, for instance. Uh, you've got a player like Maisha Hines-Allen who's on the Washington Mystics now. She, they just won a WNBA title. Mm -hmm. She was probably more marketable when she was in college here at Louisville, a place that's basketball crazy and sends 10,000 people to every women's game than she, was, uh, than she is as a professional. And you could find a, a, like a, a local retailer who would pay her a certain amount of money to be a spokesperson for them um, that probably wouldn't do the same thing when she was in the pros. So I think there's something to be said for that. I think the other thing that needs to, to, to come out in all this is people, some of these ADs and some of these coaches keep talking about, well, we've got to make sure there's still a level playing field. There's already, like, <laughs> there is nothing yeah. level about the, the current layout of, of college sports right now. When you have a, a system like the FBS does in college football, where quite literally half of the schools involved in this sport get no shot at even playing for the sport's highest prize, right. you can't talk about fair play and, and keeping the competitive balance. If you're a group of five school, you have zero chance to win a national championship. And in basketball, we've had Duke or Kentucky in the top recruiting class well, each of the last what six years. Yeah. Like it, it, it's not going to like if you're said, talking if you're worried about those schools being even more dominant, they can't get more dominant. Like, right. they, like it's it's already totally unfair. Yeah, they. I mean, going back to Duke, they just signed a kid last week named Jamin Brakefield, and. They, I mean, Michigan State has been on this kid for literally years, and Duke kind of just jumps in, and you know, seven days later, he's committed to play for Coach K. It's just, I don't know how they do it at Duke. I mean, I, I had a, a guy, uh, Matthew Travis, on the podcast a few weeks ago who said, you know, well, Duke just puts guys in the NBA, they do it clean, and that's why the kids keep going to Duke. I'm not buying that, but it, it's already not fair. It's just that you don't see it, you know what I mean? It's There's no video of what's actually going on, so everyone just says, sure. you know, okay. But right now it's not fair. I mean, Kentucky, you know, Duke, 
these same schools keep landing, you know, the same recruits every year. And it's, I don't think it's because they put team, put players in the league. I don't think it's because of the draft status or whatever at that school. They, they have some kind of thing going on with their program. And I mean, Cal Perry is obviously charismatic. Coach K is obviously a legend. So that's, that's part of it. But whatever they're doing behind closed doors is incredibly effective. I'm not sure it's all above board, but it's, it's not a fair landscape right now anyway. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, Jamin Brakefield is a guy that Louisville also had been really, really heavily on. He actually had been at the, the Louisville Live kickoff event mm-hmm. a week before Duke got involved. And when Duke offered the scholarship, when he tweeted out, you know, hey, like, <laughs> happy to be offered by Duke, I think every Louisville fan was just kind of like, you know, <laughs> whatever expletive you want to use. <laughs> this is done. And sure enough, 24 hours later, he was going and committed. I think, um, I mean, there's something to be said. It's easy, and I hear this from Kentucky fans every day to talk about, well, this isn't in place. Like, Calipari, maybe at one point in time, he had to do some shady stuff to get guys on board. But when you're sending, you know, five players to the NBA draft every single year and you're winning, it's a pretty easy pitch and all this stuff. And I think there is something to be said for that, too. Mm-hmm. I, I think that kids, there's a certain, I don't know, like, panache that comes with, I don't know if that's the right word, committing to Kentucky or, or Duke. You may take a couple of recruiting visits and feel like Georgia is a better fit than Duke. But when you sign with Georgia, you know, like your classmates who don't really follow college basketball are going to be like, why the hell are you going there? Right. But when you sign with Duke, you're the man. Yep. Like everybody knows Duke. I think there's something to be said for that, but I think there are specific instances where you have to look a little bit closer. For instance, after the, all the... ...been established. Either you believe that Zion Williamson just went to Duke because he loves, you know, the, the Cameron Crazies and the Brotherhood and all that stuff, or you believe that he got a better deal or at least an on-par deal from somebody at Duke. And like that's the type of thread that I don't think the NCAA is ever going to pull because they have enough of a, a mess on their hands right now mm-hmm. trying to deal with it. Like They don't want to start overturning the Nike YBL rocks that we got in glimpse of. They, they don't want to start pulling threads they don't have to pull. So we're never going to find out exactly what, what the uh, how Zion's recruitment played out, but uh, there there is stuff like that that definitely makes you go. You know, I, I wish we knew all the details behind there because it doesn't seem to really add up. Yeah, I, I've also kind of used the example that you're, you're never going to catch Cal Perry or or Shashevsky with quote unquote dope on the table. That's not that's not who they are. You know what I mean? Like they they've established a fan base and a following where. They don't need to be the guy in the room handing out a bag. You know, there, there's going to yeah. be somebody that's going to do that on their own, and he has plausible deniability. He's going to say, "Well, I don't, I don't know what they do or who they're dealing with," but he knows that even though he doesn't know the who, what, when, where, and why, he knows it's probably getting done and it's probably going to benefit him. Um, you know, like I told uh, Matthew Travis a few weeks ago, if if you need to see. You know, Coach K with a briefcase with $100 bills flying out of the seams in order to convince you that he's doing something shady, that's not something you're ever going to get. No, I, I totally agree. And I, I think if the last, God, how long has it been now? If, if the last two plus years have taught us anything, it's Nike is way, way better at this than everybody else. And <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, you've got Nike coming out pretty, I mean, the Marvin Bagley story, I guess, is the best example of his family in. 2009 is declaring bankruptcy and then five years later they're buying a $750,000 home and the dad is saying that his only source of income is this Nike funded AAU team and 
I think that's what we found out is that Nike, when they wanted to get players, they went to their families and said, hey, we're going to give you a certain amount of money. Start this AAU team. You guys may suck. It may look totally shady, but they can't really touch it. So right. you say that your, your, cost, your expense cost to fund the Bagley International team or whatever it was <laughs> is $750,000. And uh, on the flip side, you had Adidas executives who got infiltrated by the FBI basically because an undercover agent came to them and was like, hey, guys, really love how you illegally pay players. Would love to illegally pay players with you. Can you tell me what's going on? And they were like, come up to our hotel room. Yeah, man. We, we got Yeah, and you know, in the NCAA, I, I just I love to bag on them, but they're compliant. They were they wanted to be in the Marvin Bagley business as well. I mean, he he declared for Duke in mid September. Um, you know, this is a kid that went to five high schools in four seasons. One of them wasn't an accredited prep school, and they they got through his transcripts and pushed him to the clearinghouse in like nine days. So you know. <laughs> The NCAA knows where where the money is. They they know where their bread is buttered, and sure. you know it, it, it's a business for them as well. Like you said, it's a billion dollar business, literally a billion dollar business. So it's uh, it's frustrating when the governing body that is supposed to be uh, you know taking care of all these issues is the one that benefits the most from people and schools doing shady shit. So it's Absolutely. incredibly frustrating. Absolutely. Mike, I, uh, I appreciate you taking the time on a Sunday afternoon to sit down and talk some uh, some Louisville hoops for me. Um, was there anything else you wanted to hit before I let you go? No, man. I, I'm just excited to get this thing going. I think this is the time of year when everybody starts doing their preview stuff and you know, teams start practicing where it really starts to feel real. And I love the fact that I, for all the, the shit that college basketball gets about, you know, we're going to have a better opening night, like, there's no way to perfect college basketball when football's still going on. It's just never going to demand that much attention. I think we've done as, as good of a job as we possibly could have I mean, as a sport. I love the Champions Classic thing on night mm -hmm. one. I love getting some conference games in the mix. I love basketball all day, every day during Thanksgiving week. Yep. And just thinking about it, just talking about it right now, man, it gives me goosebumps. So I, I'm ready to get this thing started. What do we got, 20 days, 22 days? 20 like? days, man. Yeah. I, it's it's going to be a great year. Mike, I, uh, like I said, I appreciate you taking the time, and uh, I guess I'll see you out there in the Twitterverse. Absolutely, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. So that was Mike Rutherford of CardChronicle.com, which is an SB Nation site. Really want to thank Mike for taking the time <clears throat> to join me this past weekend. I thought we got some really good stuff regarding Louisville basketball and some expectations of what we can what we can have for the Louisville season. Uh, obviously, I'm very high on them. Mike's always also very high on them. I think uh, hearing that news on David Johnson was was a great thing for Louisville basketball because, as I've said on this podcast, many podcasts that I've appeared on. <clears throat> You know, point guard is maybe the one point of concern for me with this Louisville Cardinals team. So the sooner Johnson can get back, the better. And I think, you know, that keeps, you know, it'll keep Kimball fresh. It'll keep Perry in a, a defensive stopper, a, a kind of a bit player. He won't be relied upon as heavily. He'll be more of a quality depth piece. So I think that's great. <clears throat> as soon as they can get Malik Williams back, they can, uh, you know, play Iggy Han or... Ig I can't, I can't remember how Mike said his name, McGahan, I guess. I don't know which way is correct now. I'm kind of questioning myself. But, uh, you know, they can kind of see his, 
you know, maturity and, and kind of bring him along a, a more slowly behind uh, Stephen Enoch and Malik Williams. And I think that'll work out very well for them as well. I also expect to see possibly some some Wara at the five, uh, Sutton at the four, you know, with uh, with some Jalen Withers mixed in there somewhere. I mean, with this roster they just have, they have a ton of versatility. Uh, joining me next week, you guys are going to get a treat. I am bringing on former uh, former Alabama assistant coach Yashir, uh, Yashir Rosemond. We are going to talk some high-level recruiting, and I am also going to be bringing on uh, the Big Cat and Charlie and the Chimp, and we're going to talk uh, some ACC preseason stuff right before the season starts. I want it fresh in your mind for when we get the season because we're going to get all those opening night games with the exception of Duke, are all playing uh, league games to open the season. I'm not real big on that, simply because I'd like to see these ACC teams catch their stride a little bit uh, before before we get into league play. But you know, as we kick off the ACC network, we'll you know we gotta make a splash. So we'll see how that goes. So don't forget to join me next week, and don't forget to like, rate, review, share. Subscribe to the podcast. Leave me five stars. Leave me questions, comments, concerns. Always feel free to get me at me at Twitter at ACCBR1, ACCBasketballReport at gmail.com for any questions, comments. If you guys send that enough, we'll do a mailbag episode at some point. I think that's it. Later.